Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old towns of mine. You've probably never heard of Wolf the Quarrelsome. But if you were a Norse warrior 1,000 years ago, that name alone would have made you think, do we really want to do this? And think about it. We're talking about Vikings, right? They didn't exactly scare easy. Once you meet this bold Irish warrior and the woman who risked her life to build an Irish spy ring to help repel these invaders, you'll understand just what the Vikings were so afraid of. Hello, everybody. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. And a special tip of the hat to everybody watching via our YouTube channel. In this episode, the Wayback Machine travels back those 10 centuries into the past as the Viking invaders storm into Ireland. This is done through the medium of historical fiction, but Wolf and his lady spymaster were real people, and they saved the world. Not just their world, but the world. <laughs> Too old to protect the nation himself, Irish King Brian Baru turned to a champion when the Vikings invaded. He chose his brother, who else? Because when the guy is named Quarrelsome, you have to assume he's not going to take an invasion laying down. Nope, Wolf mounts a 15-year resistance campaign, and it climaxes in what's arguably the most decisive battle of the Middle Ages. Our guide in this journey is Lieutenant Colonel Thomas J. Howley, who brings us Wolf of Clontarf, the Irish, the Vikings, and the foreigners of the world. Howley is a retired U.S. Army officer turned civilian operational analyst supporting U.S. government defense and federal law enforcement agencies. You can meet him and his Irish wolfhound at tjhowleybooks.com. Okay, I'm really excited to talk about this one because I love Ireland and Irish history. Don't let my Greek last name fool you. I've been to Ireland a ton of times, and I really enjoy that, like Greece, you have history that's from a thousand years ago sitting right there in the middle of the modern world. So now that we've gotten the lay of the land long ago in that last defiant corner of Europe resisting the Viking hordes, let's join Thomas J. Howley and meet the man they called Wolf of Clontarf. And here we are with Thomas J. Howley. He's the author of the novel Wolf of Clontarf, the Irish, the Vikings, and the foreigners of the world. Welcome to the show, Tom. Thanks for having me so much, Dean. I appreciate it. Well, I love Ireland. Don't let the Greek last name and the swarthy features fool you. Those of you watching on YouTube, I have great affection for Ireland. I've been there many times. And as somebody who loves history, Ireland was a great place to go. And you can hear, if you listen, all of the sounds of these battles of days gone by. Many people were forgotten. We all like to go to those old graveyards if we're of a history mindset, right? And just enjoy what's going on today that links us still to the past of Ireland. And you do that today in Wolf of Clontarf. I want to point people to the cover first. Sometimes I like to start where the book does. There's a lot going on here. First and foremost, we have two people staring hard at us. And I just thought these are the kind of people that really feel as if they might speak to you, really look as if they're looking into your soul. And it was so well done by whoever the artist is. So I wanted to ask you how this cover of Wolf of Clontarf comes to being, who's the artist? Interesting 
uh, I re review books for Historical Novel Society. And um, I did that at the behest of my agent. And I found this one graphic artist, Kathy Helms of Avalon Graphics. And she just had these fantastic covers. The problem was they were all romance covers, but she was so good. So I contacted Kathy and I said, this is it. And she asked about everything. I sent her synopsis and so forth of the book. And she gave me several ideas. I picked the one I did, but when I first got it, I said, well, Wolf of Klontoff looks like a pretty boy. And I don't want him to look like a pretty boy. She said, I put scars. I said, I want, a, I want a bleeding head wound. And she did that. And I also wanted to have the woman on there. And the woman is Aoife. And Aoife is, becomes his love interest. But she starts off badly when he ties her to a wagon wheel. And um, she is tough. I thought of Mary Lou Retton. Remember the old gymnast uh, from the <laughs> sure. 1980s? Shot, dark hair, tough as nails. And she has a similar background to Wolf. They were both orphans. And the Vikings had killed both of their parents. But Kathy Helms is the one that did that book cover. It does look like it has a little bit of a romance novel quality to it, yes. but because of the way that they're looking at you, it's just that it's very intense. So you can see where that influence comes into play. But also for me, speaking as a man, I don't usually pick up somebody who's coiffed or buy makeup magazines or the shiny magazines or much less a novel with Fabio on it. I look at that and I, it doesn't seem real. They both seem very real to me. When you look at them, they really, you almost want to look away. So I like so much that she captured that. And you mentioned Aoife in there. And here, you can't have much more of an Irish name for a woman than that. That's that's just a great name. I know an Aoife over there in Ireland. And it speaks to you that here already, we're learning something we might not expect to find a thousand years ago anywhere, much less in Ireland. And here we find this woman who's in the spy business. So since we'll spend a lot of time talking about Wolf, since this is his book, he's the one in the title, what can you tell us about her? What's in her background that draws the two of them together and will draw readers then into Wolf of Clontarf? Well, first of all, Celtic women in general, going back to the times of the Romans, were pretty tough. <laughs> and um, they were not afraid to engage in combat, though they didn't do it as much as um, has been issued. But uh, the real reason I put her in is it was totally logical to have, have a female spy master. Uh, and the Irish would have accepted that because they knew that women could go everywhere and see things where a man, a strange man would be considered out of place. And she came from the same background as Wolf. Both of them were orphans. Both of their parents had been, had been um, murdered by the Vikings in raids. And um, he, after their initial bad meeting, uh, when she was so anti-Viking, she was as bad as he was, if not worse, um, they came closer and closer and closer. And she wanted to be a physical warrior. And he said, no, you're too smart from that, for that. 
and uh, said, I would like to put you on our staff and uh, I think you can do great things. And that's a shot version of how she did it. But it was totally in keeping with Celtic Irish women. They've always been involved in wards of national liberation. Well, Ireland, because they are a small country, usually trying to fight a bigger foe, they have to have all hands on deck. And I found that very interesting. I want to make clear to people, this is historical fiction. So this is based on real history. And that brings us to your real history. Here you have a career of service in the US Army and as an intelligence analyst for defense and law enforcement agencies. So how do you, a man with your background, with that accent, which is certainly not an Irish accent, right? Although not too far from it as far as how we think of Boston, right? <laughs> but how do you dive into this book? How do you go and become a novelist and bring Wolf's story to life? Well, you hit it at the beginning. I, I grew up my I grew up in Boston, in the, in the city of Boston, and uh, my father was off the boat from the old country and the mother was one generation removed. So I grew up hearing the stories and especially the songs uh, about this. So I knew about the Battle of Clontarf. And uh, so I knew that since I was a very, very young kid. And then when I was growing up, that my two literary influences were Robert E. Howard, most notably known for Conan the Barbarian, but he also considered himself to be quite Irish. He wrote two short stories about the Battle of Clontarf, one of them from a fantasy perspective and one of them straight, uh, straight historical fiction. And he had a uh, Irish hero called Cormac McCart. So I'm a little kid, I'm in grammar school and in high school, and I'm reading that. And then in 1980, I'm in the army, Morgan Llewellyn, she wrote a book called Lion of Ireland. And uh, President Reagan, I remember seeing him on the news once, was walking around with this book in his hand called Lion of Ireland. And he said it was his favorite book. So I read that. And that was really uh, the thing that cemented in my mind that I should write a book like Morgan Llewellyn did, which was a masterpiece. And she concentrated on, on Brian Baru, but I want to concent concentrate on the common people and the, and the, and the, uh, the, the regular people of Ireland. And then later I heard about this character called Wolf of Klontoff. So when, uh, or, or Wolf the Quarrelsome, which comes, by the way, not from the Irish annals, not from Christian sources, but from the Norse sagas, specifically Burnt Njal Saga. He's only mentioned twice. And like um, the great Ben Thompson said, both time he's mentioned very briefly, but both time he's kicking ass. So I thought that is a guy that has to be brought back into uh, current history. That's a, that's a short story. <laughs> you mentioned the Battle of Clontarf, that you learned about it as a young man, and it fascinated you. That's an area, it's right around Dublin, right? Is it between Dublin and Hoth, I believe? Hoth is one of my yes, favorite yeah. places yeah. there. 
So this is a real place. And if people are saying, I hear that word, I don't know what Klontarf is or where it is. Why is it important? Why is winning that battle in 1014 something that we should remember? And how does our world today in 2021 look very different without Wolf and Ifa's grit? This is another good question. And it was another aspect that motivated me to write the book. You and I remember Y2K, uh, year 2000. Back then, the press was still pretty good. Time Magazine, a lot of the magazines wrote great articles about what was it like a thousand years before in the first millennium. And so I, I, I read about that. And as crazy as we all went in Y2K, 2000, a thousand years before, they went much crazier. You have to remember what Western Europe or Europe was like back then. The, they, we had Moorish invaders coming up from the south and they had got all of Spain pretty much. They, Corsica and Sicily, they were impacting into Italy, Southern Italy. From the east, step riders who would be early versions of the later Mongols almost got to the French coast before they were stopped. And from the north, the Vikings, they were active everywhere. They conquered all of Russia and made Russia basically a satrapy of, of the Swedish Vikings. Um, uh, Normandy, they not only invaded, but they took it over. And England, they took over. The common people at the year 1000 thought their world was ending. They thought that was it. Pope Sylvester was the Pope, Sylvester II, he was an astronomer, he knew that the world was round, and the common people thought he was a, he was a sorcerer because he was a scientist, an astronomer, and so forth. A really good job they did talking about the year 1000 back then. So I said, that impacted on what happened here. In 1013, King Svein Forkbeard, King of Denmark, had already uh, taken over much of Norway, and they were all fellow Vikings, right? But in 1013, he conquered the Anglo-Saxon England, all of it. And if, if things had gone differently at Clontop in 1014, and the characters that I have, most of whom are historical, um, actually took over Ireland, things could have been exceedingly different than the way they turned out. It, it could have been um, pretty much the end of Christianity. The, the uh, Christian Greek Roman empire was just starting to have their own problems. And um, if the Vikings had taken all of Northern Europe and if they had Russia and if the Moors came up further. So I think in that sense, I think Klontoff, and I have a political reason we may get into, Klontoff was, uh, was a major significant battle. Since it's so important, you just said major significant battle. How is it that history forgot about it or was erased from history, the memory of this fight? Yeah, this is the other thing. When I was like you, even when I was very young in grammar school at St. Anne's School, 
I loved going to the library and reading military history. And um, I read, and you and I probably both know, there are a whole series of books on the most significant battles of European history, or the most decisive battles of the Middle Ages, or the uh, most, um, the, the greatest battles uh, of the past. And I read all those books, but I never saw Klontoff. <laughs> and so I, I, as a young kid, I didn't know any better, but as I got older, then it finally became incandescently clear the, the, the British ascendancy, the economic, political, and um, social uh, ascendancy that controlled Ireland, they didn't want to have any part of this great story of how this one island was able to um, come together and eject the invaders and establish their own sovereignty. That would not have gone over very well with the British. Right up until 1916, 1921. And then after that, and I, I'll admit, you know, the Irish did recognize that Clontaff existed, but I thought in 2014, the 1000 millennium anniversary, why didn't the Irish make a bigger deal about it? And I looked at the media over there and they kind of did, but they said, well, you know, the, the, again, the media, the primary media said, well, this was just a little um, squabble among various um, Irish kings with a uh, few Vikings on either side. And I said, why would they say that? That's categorically incorrect. And, um, that, that, that it dawned on me, 2014, the European Union was there, right? Same story. <laughs> we, can't, we can't be celebrating anything about any of these locals, <laughs> you know, being able to, you know, take care of their own affairs or reject foreign influence in their country. And it was the same thing. And even though it wasn't British control anymore, the same ascendancy is still there about the European Union. That's my political aspect of it. And, and then, it, fantastically, in 2018, there was a um, study by a British university that looked at, um, forensically, based on names of all of the history, was this really just a squabble between feuding Irish kings? And they came up with the real answer, no. It was, it was Vikings versus, versus Irish. And that's, that's pretty much um, how we haven't heard about it. And I've read, the, read those books when I was a kid. And it wasn't a bigger deal in 2014. And I've written articles for a couple of Irish um, websites and so forth, uh, putting forth that position. And I get a lot of... Um, positive comments from people over there. <laughs> and I'd asked how you decided that your background would help you because it doesn't seem as if somebody who 
worked in the or served in the armed forces would end up writing a novel and a fictionalized version of this great story. So what makes you do that? Were you already a person that was big into reading historical fiction? Or did you think, as you maybe hinted at there, that someone had to tell the story and nobody was, so it was going to be you? The latter, definitely. And just because his character, Wolf the Quarrelsome, Wolf Raider, the Vikings called him, and they gave him his name. Uh, I call him Fuelen Antradach in Irish, which means Wolf the Quarrelsome, because that story had to be told. And I thought, maybe if I do a fictional version of just normal people, so you don't get caught in the court intrigue and so forth between Brian Baru, whose um, daughter, by the way, was married to the Viking King of Dublin, and it gets even more intricate. It, Game of Thrones had nothing on the real <laughs> on the real story back then. Morgan Llewellyn handled that. I wanted to handle the military and the uh, historical aspects as well as I could. And I also wanted to put a little vim and vigor into it. And that's why I have the foreigners of the world. He really is the stuff of comic books. Him and Aoife both, we are used to spy novels, all that. It has so much of that. And the setting is something completely different. This is not a time where we expect to find that going on in Ireland. Until you go there, and as you're speaking about Wolf the Quarrelsome being forgotten and not honored in modern Ireland, I thought, gee, they have 300,000 statues of Wolf Tone. Like, is there a limit on the number of wolf statues that they're willing to have? Or even all the ones on uh, all the things and places and plaques of Cromwell saying, you stop in a town in Ireland and, okay, he killed 300 here. He killed 700 here. A bloody, bloody country from Oliver Cromwell and many others over there. And his story can seem very fantastical because it does seem like a comic book character. But it's very personal and very real. So you mentioned the Norse, and I want to talk about that real aspect. It reminds me of the Soviets giving Margaret Thatcher the nickname the Iron Lady, and not meaning as not meaning it as a compliment, just meaning, you know, they, they were on the other side, even though that's probably not the best for the for the Irish listeners and viewers to hear me compare Wolf the Quarrelsome to Margaret Thatcher. But taking aside national feelings and national pride, that's what it was like when you were fighting this guy. You you had to respect him. So how did the Norse see this man? And what was it like to stand against him in battle? Like, like I said, uh, he's only mentioned twice, very briefly, in the Norse sagas, which gave it even more import to me, because the Vikings were mentioned. And if the Vikings say you're a tough guy, you got to be a tough guy. <laughs> and, 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 uh, and that's a 13th century Icelandic saga, or a Njal saga. Um, but there were still people alive then that had been there. And um, they called him Wolf the Quarrelsome. They didn't know exactly who he was. Was he King Brian Baru's brother? Was he King Brian Baru's bodyguard? What? So what I did is I made him King Brian's foster son. And he grew up after being taken from Western Ireland he watched his mother butchered by a Viking matriarch when he was uh, only 14. And then he was thrown into a cell, but because he was still valuable to them as a servant, 
they kept him alive and beat him and so forth. And he just developed this, like I call a Terminator-like hatred for the Vikings. I call him a medieval ter Terminator somewhere. He lost his ability to speak. All he could do was snarl and growl when Gosh. Vikings were, were around. And on to bring this circle back, to use a common expression today, uh, on the eve of the millennium, 1000 AD, King Brian, actually, that was the first time he went into Dublin and defeated the Viking Dublin king and his Linster allies and rescued uh, 14 year old Fwailin Antodak or Wolf the Quarrelsome. And then the story progresses from there. Brian sends him to a good school, uh, to the uh, um, Abbey at Innisfallen. He gets a classic education, but he still, it took, takes him a while to learn to talk again, talk again. And uh, he loves history. Everything else, it can take a leave, but he loves history. And he learns primarily his biggest interest is military history. I know that might sound a bit autobiographical, but that's the way it works. <laughs> well, all the more reason to give him his fair place in history, because then you hear that. And I'm sure a lot of people listening thought what I did, which was, hey, he was one of us. He deserves to be remembered better in history and not not forgotten. And when you when you hear somebody that's that is called quarrelsome, you probably don't think works well with others. It's the exact opposite of that phrase we use all the time. So it's interesting that the Irish high king, Brian Baru, chooses him or reaches out and says, hey, let, let me get some kind of defense here. I can't do it. And I wanted to mention that Brian Baru, by the way, is my 32 great-great-grandfather-in-law, meaning I really have no connection. It's sort of like space balls, right? I, I am your father's brother's nephew's cousin's former roommate. But anyway, we, my wife, <laughs> that just means your Irish nobility too. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I felt kinship and right away, my wife, who's a genealogist went to the family tree and tries to find. And so this, this makes these people feel real to us. It's not just that I have something funny to say in an interview. It makes you realize this was a real person. This is not just a work of fiction. You can go there today. You can see very much unchanged, at least the, the coastline. A lot of the Irish history has been preserved despite the best efforts of the British to erase a lot of these things. So I did want to ask you that before I ask you to read a passage from Wolf of Clontarf, and that's how much is left today in that area, north of Dublin, nearby Hoth? It's probably my favorite place there, Hoth. I have a lot of fond memories of, of visiting there. But as somebody who's a tourist, once the world opens back up, we have more tourism back to Ireland. How much of this world a thousand years ago is still available for us to see today? The, the Irish have done a good job of keeping monuments and so forth over there. But um, I walked the ground uh, when I'd been there in person. And as, a, as an analyst, intelligence analyst, I also did terrain analysis based on what else? Google Earth, right? And there is just off of Klontoff, a bit north of Klontoff, there's an island called Bull Island. That did not exist back in 
10,014. It really was built from a sandbar in the 1700s and 1800s, and now it's got two world-famous golf courses on it. So that wasn't there then. Uh, but Houth is still there, and um, Houth plays significantly. Well, it plays in my book, um, and, and that's a way that they could come around. And uh, I tried to put a lot of military aspects into it, like an astute reader would find Clausewitz's nine principles of war in there. <laughs> and an expression that we use called intelligence preparation of the battle space and um, asynchronous warfare and countering your enemy's center of gravity. Now I didn't use all those terms, but I tried to put all of that in a medieval uh, action adventure historical fiction novel. So that's kind of how it bled into it. But no, the terrain looks a bit different now than it did back then. I like to ask, as I was mentioning there and listening to you speak, got swept away in it, but I did not want to forget that I said you were going to read a short passage for us. Give us something interesting to hear so that we can get a flavor for your writing, but also what is important to you as an author, what you find to be something that sweeps you away, that you really enjoyed sinking your teeth into as an author and writing. So set up this bite for us and read from Wolf of Clontarf. I, ironically, this is in the first chapter. Um, so it starts um, at, at the very beginning and then it goes back to how we grew up. The gargantuan figure stood erect to its full height and turned to face the two, its eyes burning, Rognatha's jaw grinning horribly. Despite the lack of armor, Thorbrand saw that the black lacquered and elegantly ornamented iron helmet of a berserker chieftain adorned the head of the giant. The thing must have ripped off the visor because its terrible scarred face was fully exposed. Both Norsemen backed away. To their dread, they now saw both children were smiling with horrible glee in their shining youthful eyes. Silently, the monstrous demon moved toward them. Ulf, Fenrir, Brian's wolf from hell, called Thorbrand to his dispirited comrade. When we go now to Valhalla, our father's fathers will not disclaim us. Die now with pride and honor by my side. That, that was, uh, at the beginning, I wanted to try to set the stage, even though it later goes into his childhood and so forth, that he really was a medieval Terminator. <laughs> Reminds me also his origin story. I liken things to comics sometimes and we have that origin story, which is not what novelists would have called that either until we did have comic books, but we all know what it is. And the one for Andrew Jackson was not dissimilar. Abused by the British, blames them for his mother's death. I think he's exactly 14 years old too as well, although probably a little hazy, just like his birthplace, but in my memory at least. But that makes you identify with him right away. And he chooses to take up the sword. There's many different ways to fight for freedom. So what comes to your mind when you hear about that and you hear, well, would I put this guy on my team? Because you have military experience. What is it about him that despite his obvious chip on his shoulder and maybe being a little unbalanced makes Brian Brew pick him? 
And it's so interesting you said that about Andrew Jackson. You were the second podcast author I talked to, and I had never even thought of Andrew Jackson. And I like Andrew Jackson, who brought out that same thing. The other two are obviously is uh, Rodrigo um, de Viva, El Cid, who's the other one I kind of conceptually thought of, and a blinding flash of the obvious to use a military term, William Wallace. Those were the historical ones that I thought of. Why does he get picked? Because uh, two reasons. Uh, Brian, King Brian, has his entire family involved in this. Sons, grandsons, nephew, nephews, and so forth. But he's been involved in the King Brian himself and has suffered from the um, political intrigue, court intrigue. And so they're all kind of working, and I don't want to disparage King Brian's family, but he looks at Wolf, and especially in the book, Efer is the one that King Brian thinks, we're never going to be able to win. We're done. It's over. And Efer is able to give an intelligence report that shows that it's not as bad as it seems. And she said, even though the Northern clans aren't joining with us, and even though we have Vikings from all over Northern Europe coming against us, um, we have a lot of young women and men running away from home to come down and join us. And then Wolf gets pumped up about that. And that's pretty much how um, Brian tells him uh, that, okay, you go out and do a, another military term, command his ride, um, prepare the battle space, and I'll trust you to do that. Having said that, the key question is, why is it that Ireland never was totally defeated or conquered like Russia and Normandy and England? And the answer is, even though they were not necessarily politically cohesive, they, they were, they had a common language, common ethnic background, a common religion, and the church never kind of went to pieces in Ireland, the Celtic, Irish Celtic church, like it did in England and on the continent. That kind of helped them stay together. And the first thing is they took it seriously and they fought back viciously from the beginning, from the 800s. They didn't always win, they lost a lot, but they did not, um, they did not just bow down and they never paid ransom. And just interesting historical facts. The ransom thing is particularly interesting because we still hear that today. It's still US policy today, at least it ebbs and flows anyway, depending on who is in the White House. But we try not to pay terrorists and it, it makes sense unless you're the poor sucker who gets captured and you're saying, please, please pay the ransom. But you can't because it encourages it. So that's an interesting fact. And I like that it's much the same as you weaving in your military experience. And we may call all of these things by different names today, but it was much the same a thousand years ago. And in a thousand years, there'll be people needing to do those same things. Yes, there was no Danegelt. And Danegelt has come into the English language now. It basic me basically means paying ransom. 
They didn't. They never did that. What made them unique? Why didn't they pay it? They knew that that was part of the asymmetric warfare. They had to do it, not enrich them, or what? No, I think it, what I, what I said be, at at the beginning that they were uh, culturally and ethnically cohesive, and the church stayed together, and um, England and even France and Russia were 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 really different groupings of people with different religions and so forth. And the other thing is they took it serious and they were wild Irish guys, right? So they're not gonna, I mean, they struck back hard and there was no center of gravity, religious center of gravity for the Vikings to take over for them because each of the abbeys kind of did their own thing. And Irish Christian religion at the time was a bit different than the the Roman Christian religion. So it wasn't as centralized, it wasn't as easy to take out, for lack of a better word. I'm picturing them as so dedicated and it reminds me of Greece, specifically Crete and the resistance to the Nazis there. And if you watch a documentary called The 11th Day, it's by Alex Spanos, who's also Greek, owns the Chargers or owned the Chargers. And so he funded this documentary on the resistance there and the Nazis would retaliate as Nazis do for acts of resistance and they would kill scores of civilians, wipe out an entire village. And the general who's in charge, he finds himself going to the window and they ask him, why are you going to the window to watch these executions? And he says, because I never saw people with such dignity and stoicism meet their end. And he begins to realize that this is not going to be effective. And that's, that's how maybe it's a little bit of projection. Not that I ever had the uh, stones or was faced with such a challenge, but it reminded me of that. When you say they wouldn't pay the ransom, I thought somebody, somebody pays with something for that. If, whether to have their throat cut or be dragged off into being slavery or just killed on the spot. So that's, that's something that's so key. You really see what he is fighting for, Wolf, that he's willing to take up a sword and stand against foes like that. Yeah, that that's a great story. I didn't know that. I appreciate you telling me that. I, I don't want to overdo the fact that the Vikings, by the year 1000, a lot of them, especially the royalty, were, be, were becoming Christian, right? But the vast majority of the common people, they wanted, they wanted the old pantheon of Nordic gods, they didn't want to become Christian. And if they had won, it, because the primary players in the invasion in 1014 were Sigurd and Broder. They were the, called the Vikings of the Isles. And even though they were in a bunch of islands, Orkneys and Hebrides, they were ex exceedingly powerful and rich, and they could hire a lot of mercenaries. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, the... the, the the Vikings and, and the Nordic and the Scandinavians very easily could have returned to the old religion. And it was a war fighting religion. So that's another reason I think Klontoff was a fairly big deal. You're enjoying my conversation with Thomas J. Howley. He's author of Wolf of Klontarf, the Irish, the Vikings, and the foreigners of the world. Ben Thompson, who's the man behind Badass of the Week, writes of the book, 
the life of Ireland's most mysterious and badass warrior comes to life in white-knuckle detail as the Norse invaders of Ireland discover that the only thing bigger and more badass than a heavily armed band of Viking berserkers is a man known only as Wolf the Quarrelsome. Tom, I don't think I've ever used the word badass on the show, much less spoken it three times there in one review. But that was a website that I was familiar with before the reviews in the magazine and then badass of the week. And Theodore Roosevelt's appeared there. I am sure Andrew Jackson, we were just talking about, has to have appeared there. These guys that did what had to be done. They were really tough resistance fighters. And so I definitely wanted to wanted to read that. That's a lot of fun to read, as is your book, Wolf of Clontarf. I mean, this is a fun book. It's a tough book. It's a reminder of what tough people do when they're pushed against the wall, specifically men here in the form of wolf. So for those familiar with the historical badasses, with fictional badasses. You mentioned the Terminator. So think about Clint Eastwood movies, these guys who are real tough guys that that go out there and they fight for what's right. They fight to protect home and hearth. They don't let even a tragedy, a murder in their family, murder of their mother, they don't let it crush them and they don't give in, don't surrender. So who would you compare him to other than the Terminator? Who do you find yourself when you're reading the various aspects of Wolf's life? Hmm, that reminds me of a movie that I saw or somebody in a film. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, Rodrigo de Viva, um, El Cid, uh, which is not too long after this, a little bit after the, uh, in the late uh, 1000s. And um, obviously William Wallace, just, you gotta say William Wallace and Braveheart Similar background, William Wallace. If you read the real book, Braveheart, it's, it's nonfiction and it's not, it's not really like the movie, but it's pretty gritty. And he was, he was treated bad by the English overlords. And then, as you said, of course, uh, Andrew Jackson. With now two of you, uh, podcast guys told me about Andrew Jackson. So I'm going with Andrew, <laughs> President Jackson. Well, people like to read him and he doesn't have any of the things that people criticize uh, Jackson for, but that was the case in his life too. And yeah. also that they, they take him, they send him, doesn't the uh, Monroe Madison administrations, that era, they, everyone knows that he's this guy who's just spoiling for a fight. So they say, well, why don't we send him to keep the peace down at the border of Spanish Florida? And then, well, what's Andrew Jackson going to do if you send him down there? You know darn well, you don't have the guts to tell him to go do what you want done, namely <laughs> annex Florida. So, but you say, well, if we leave the dog out, you know, he'll just go. And, right. and then the next thing you know, you get a telegram. Oh, by the way, he, he just decided he executed two Spanish soldiers. And you say, oh my gosh, he calls all, everybody sells him out. Everybody disavows him. It's kind of like the... A team or the Mission Impossible TV show, right? We disavow all knowledge of anything <laughs> we did. So, yeah, I think that that's a real good link, a real, real clear link in my mind. Also Irish, and so there you go. Yeah, Maybe this... right. I, yes, yes. In fact, the <laughs> the podcast person that told me that was also Irish. 
<laughs> in fact, I think they tried to say he was born in the boat on the way over and therefore ineligible, but he, or he may was, uh, he wasn't born there, but anyway, Andrew Jackson could take over any conversation. So I'll shove him to the side now and risk my life in so doing, but I want to read something here, just a, a quick line, something you wrote that jumped out to me in Wolf of Clontarf. You wrote, quote, we found Irishmen from Dublin who had sailed with the Vikings, some as servants and others as willing freebooters to raid the land of the Saxons. Now, Tom, Ireland is controlled by rival chieftains at this point in history. As you mentioned, there's no central authority that you could just go to and say, well, I'll put a sword in this guy's head and make him do what I want and make him pull a Marshal Patan. And yeah, you're going to be my puppet now. So make way because I'm going to put my hand up and uh, start moving your mouth for you. So how does the lack of a unified command structure really set the odds against Wolf, not just help him do this, but how does that make it difficult? How do, how do things like just recruiting those people that you said are flooding his way, what does he have to do to get the word out and to let people know, I'm not just one crazy guy standing up here. I'm fighting for all of us. This is your fight. So join me. Ireland wants you. This is inside baseball, Irish history. I told you the, ab the abbeys pretty much were controlling a lot of the church. And Brian paid the, um, the Abbey in Amar, I think it was, uh, so many pieces of gold saying, you support me. And so these, this Abbey, which was the most powerful, they were the kingmakers more or less, supported him. And traditionally it had been the Northern Kings, the, the, the O'Neills that had been the high kings, so-called high kings. So he did that, but he also went on a peace march trying to convince people to join him around the entire island. It's, this is historically accurate. And I, I read it in a book of all things. It was a West Point um, graduate student's uh, thesis <laughs> about Brian Baru. And I, you know, he was a, a, a lieutenant colonel. And so he did that to try to convince the people to be with him. But when push came to shove, he only had his province, basically four provinces in Ireland then, Munster, and he had the southern part of one of the other provinces, Connacht, where my people come from. So I had to make them look good, the O'Kellys. <laughs> and if you remember my story about the Kellys, they came and Meath, the central, there were a central province in Ireland, Meath, uh, King Malachy came too, but he kind of sat on the sidelines till the end to see which way the, the wind went. He by far did not have a united Ireland and a united army with everybody in Ireland there. And that's the other thing I have to, full disclosure, when you read the history, it's not like even, you know, even Thermopylae, where you have better examples of quantitative numbers. Depending on what you read, it was anywhere from a few thousand on each, on each side in the battle to as many as uh, 25,000 on each side. So a total of 50,000. I picked something in the middle and I picked like nine to 10,000 on each side. But the reality is, well, we don't know. They, they were more interested in heroism and telling sagas and annals and romantic stories than they were about you know, all the engineering detail of writing 
how many individuals are involved. But the reason they say foreigners of the world, it was such a critical thing that for 200 years afterwards, if you read the, um, I, I said foreigners of the world, yeah. If you read the Chronicles, and the Chronicles were yearly events, usually done by Christian clergy in Europe. Everyone wanted to say one of their ancestors had fought in, in at Klontoff. Didn't matter whether you were French, whether you were German, whether you were Italian, everybody wanted to say, yeah, so-and-so, my great-grandfather, my grandfather, and, and all of the Icelanders, the uh, Danes, and, and the Saxons, I have renegade Saxons, they all wanted to say, yeah, oh, yeah, he fought at Klontoff. And that's something you don't hear a lot, that for 200 years, people were saying, and that's where the term came, foreigners of the world, which is from those chronicles and from the annals. All of the foreigners of the world, obviously an exaggeration, were there. There's even some Greeks up there. So people think I've wedged well, that in Greeks two times, there. right? You put Eric them there. <laughs> from the Greek, uh, Greek, uh, Christian Greek Roman Empire. I'm learn I've learned from my uh, mentor, because the next venue is going to be in Spain, uh, that when you talk about um, uh, Byzantine Empire is apparently, who the heck knew, is apparently an insult. Uh, Byzantium was this little fishing village. And it was a, <laughs> yeah. a, a, a just really interesting. Uh, Professor Dario Fernandez, he's helping me. So I got to get smart on Spain. Uh, <laughs> but I had the Byzantine uh, ambassador to the... Um, uh, to the Danes uh, is who Paris Lacopeno was, the Greek. And he ends up, he can't stand the Vikings. He said they smell bad and, <laughs> and uh, they don't treat them with respect and they're ignorant. And he defects to the Irish side. That, that was a <laughs> bit of an embellishment, but it was fun. <laughs> It's funny because as soon as you told me we were talking via email and you said there's even a Greek in this so trying to endear him to me yeah. and I, I thought well he I thought jokingly he probably defected to that side just because of my personal history and then sure <laughs> enough here here we get it and it seems uh, I don't want to spoil that for people that are going to read it trust me there's plenty here in Wolf of Clontarf to enjoy you speak here about your Irish identity about tracing your roots back about people wanting to find the stories that weren't written down often because there is high illiteracy until we have the great war. And then there's very high literacy and everyone's writing letters home and things like that. And certainly this is a thousand years ago. So it's far out of living memory. And yet you do something in your personal life to keep it alive by writing this novel. And also in addition to the things you were just mentioning, you have an Irish wolfhound. I loved seeing that. And he has a Gaelic name, correct? So how do you end up there with this dog? What, what does that mean to you? You see that dog stomping around and you think of the days of, of Ireland when they, they needed those dogs very much to hunt and they're, they're gone now pretty much uh, over there. They're certainly not working dogs. Why? Why that breed? And that's the first in a string that you've had, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And that goes back again to when I was a little kid going to the St. Patrick's Day parades in South Boston where the police and the National Guard had mascots that were Irish wolfhounds. And I was just over the moon looking at these giant creatures that were Irish like me. And uh, at a St. Patrick's Day parade, how cool can that be? 
Well, I can never really get one because I grew up in the inner city and, you know, it's not really a great place for 140 to 190 <laughs> pound dogs. And uh, in the army, it's kind of, even though some people had them, it's kind of tough. Soon as I retired from the military, uh, almost the first thing after getting my second career is I, I went and I, I got my first Irish wolfhound. The one I have now is Sasha. She's my first girl. Sasha is Irish for freedom. The first one was Cullen. The second one was Ronan. The third one was Finn. And now I have Sasha. <laughs> so I live in New Hampshire now. There's woods everywhere. We go out for a few miles every day and uh, she's off the leash and everybody loves her. <laughs> There's a great mural there, and I believe it's Dublin Castle of the wolfhounds going and taking down a buck, and they're just so majestic, but they almost didn't make their transition. They could have easily died out. Of yes. By you owning those dogs, you're doing your part here to preserve an Irish and, legacy. And, and I'm mortified to say it was an English captain. I think his name was Captain <laughs> Graham. You may know the story, who resuscitated the breed in the late 1800s, because in the 1800s, the Irish didn't, they couldn't keep a big dog. They had the potato famine, they, yeah. they were all starving. So he rescued a few of the last ones, mixed them back together and brought them together. And that's when, one example of a uh, British, English military occupier doing something right. <laughs> <laughs> well, also in modern life, people tend to have a lot of little knickknacks, like put put this cup empty on a table and then make an Irish wolfhound happy. It's like the tail goes, <laughs> and poof, right? that thing is gone. So Correct. no, that, that stuff's all gone. All little knickknacks, little things people put out on Christmas. Those are all out. She was, so. she was good today. It was, it was the cat, Dougie, that came in. and <laughs> <laughs> Wanted one, because knew I was going to ask a question, not about the cat. So I apologize <laughs> down there. I can't see you, but I apologize. To <laughs> but I, I want to close by asking you to make your pitch. We've talked a lot about just how fascinating this period was about how interesting it is just for the history minded person to remember this battle. But why should readers, whether they have any connection to Ireland or not, whether they're particularly interested in life a thousand years ago, don't see its relevance today, maybe. Why should they pick up Wolf of Clontarf and meet this man and woman who laid their lives on the line for the defense of Ireland and Christian civilization 1000 years ago? I would think the short answer is I like fantasy. I like Tolkien. I like all of that stuff. But there's nothing as interesting as our own genuine history, especially in the Middle, middle Ages. And if you, can, if you can season it with a bit of uh, fictional um, sauce and keep it and I like this word, historically plausible. It very easily could have happened that Paris Lacapeno could have come to Ireland. That could very easily have happened. And if you keep that there, you're not gonna read any adventure um, anywhere in fantasy um, or science fiction or anything that is as interesting is our own real history. And this is an action adventure and it features the common people. It's not a, not a court intrigue, Game of Thrones, 
uh, type of thing. It's common, everyday people, foreigners of the world, to include PICS, <laughs> P-I-C-T-S. <laughs> That's Everybody's a shot, a shot. And, it, and I didn't want to make it just a military slaughter fest. And so I have the, uh, a lot of women as actors and especially Aoife and uh, intelligence as well. And I try to put some humor in it along with the dogs. The, uh, I call them Irish hounds. They're in it as well. <laughs> and it's literally something for everything. I wanna thank you so much, Thomas J. Howley, author of Wolf of Clontarf. I thank you for not being quarrelsome with me today, also for your service in the US military and for taking those skills. We really need people to write fiction that have real life experience to bring their passion to somebody like this legendary badass. I really enjoyed our conversation so much today. I enjoyed the book. I might not want to face Wolf in battle. I don't think any of us would, but he's real nice to spend a few hours, maybe a weekend this summer reading his story and get to know him, get to know Aoife. It really is an enjoyable story. I wish you the best of luck with the book. And I thank you for bringing it to our attention so that Wolf and the Battle of Clontarf may be forgotten no more. Thanks so much, Dean. Uh, I was looking forward to talking to you and I have to tell you, it exceeded my expectations. Uh, <laughs> it really was interesting, especially the Andrew Jackson one. <laughs> but thank you so much. I know I was only the second one on that, but I think when people read a good book, they'll find all sorts of things to yeah. enjoy and spark their memory. And Wolf of Clontarf certainly is that. So thank you so much for sharing it with us. Thanks again. Again, the novel is Wolf of Clontarf, the Irish, the Vikings, and the foreigners of the world. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at the historyauthor.com page for this episode. Every time you buy a book through us, you help keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. Thanks to Thomas J. Howley for joining us and for transporting the entire History Author Show back to the Emerald Isle of a thousand years ago. Remember to visit him at tjhowleybooks.com and you can find me at Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn as well as our new YouTube channel, where I hope you'll subscribe to enjoy future trips in the Wayback Machine. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. Please do join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio or wherever you enjoy the program. Until our next trip into the past together, on behalf of Thomas J. Howley, I thank you for spending time with us today. And until our next time travel adventure into the past, I hope you have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.